Shall you pray with me? Hallelujah for the cross. We exalt you, our God the King. We will praise your name forever and ever. Every day we will praise you and exalt your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. Your greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And we will meditate on your wonderful works. Lord, we have seen your love by seeing your son on the cross. Who am I? Who are we to be loved by you? We are in wonder and awe because we don't understand where this love comes from. Open our blind eyes so that we may be able to see your love for us in a new way. Father, we lift up the country of China. We thank you for the awesome growth of the church in that nation. Your gospel is being poured out onto the people of China and they are responding with willing hearts and committed souls. We pray for an influx of faithful pastors and workers to this field in China that is ripe for the harvest. We pray for a continued church growth and pure biblical teaching amid ongoing tremendous persecution. And we ask for Jesus' teachings to uh, take root in the culture and expose all false religions. We pray for a renewed value for life, to abolish abortion, suicide, abandonment, and human trafficking. Lord, we thank you for the many orphanages and Christian adoption agencies working in place to uh, place orphan children and forever, for forever mommies and daddies. Continue to work in people's hearts to possibly consider adopting a little girl or boy from this country. Father, we also want to pray for the country of Ecuador. We pray for wise government leaders who are committed to justice and willing to address difficult social issues. May there be a spiritual maturity in the church that roots out false teaching and embraces a heart for the less evangelized. We pray for effectively trained workers equipped for addressing both physical and spiritual poverty. Thank you for the work and ministry of a pastoral retreat center called Hacienda del Refugio, located in the village of Calicali. As it seeks to aid and come alongside of Ecuadorian pastors and leaders, giving them a place where they can rest and be spiritually rejuvenated so that they can come back to their flock with a new zeal for the gospel. We lift up the authorities of our own nation that you have put in place. We pray that President Biden and those in his administration would be honest and they would never place their short-term personal interest, financial or otherwise, above the well-being of the people over whom God has given them authority. We pray that the Lord would change President Biden's mind and heart on issues of crucial moral concern. 
Lord, cause our president to show compassion towards the unborn and even to rise up to defend them. We pray for Governor Inslee, Lieutenant Governor Denny Heck, and our U.S. state representatives. We pray for their honesty, integrity, and not to seek after their own interests, but that they would seek after God and his will and to represent the people of Washington faithfully with goodness and truth. We also lift up Rainier Hills Christian Fellowship. We thank you for sending Paul, Mike, and Chris as they pastor this church in Buckley. Give them extra strength. Give them extra wisdom that they need to lead and teach, even as Satan tries to attack this body of believers because they are doing a mighty work for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we also pray for the elders, Mark Babbitt and Roy McKenzie, included in with the pastors. Let them be leaders, men of God, and to always be ready for the wiles of the evil one. We pray for a time in the word that it would be enriching and a fulfilling time with you, Lord. We pray for Pastor Paul this morning as he leads the congregation through the Gospel of Matthew. I believe he is uh, going through chapter 12, verses 38 through 42, which happens to be on Jonah. We pray that their ears would be open and ready to hear the preaching of the word. And now we want to focus on our own family here. We lift up the Williams family as they take on the hospice care of Craig's mother, who is suffering from dementia. We pray that God would be glorified for family unity in this time and for smoothness in all the details that caring for another person involves. And we pray for Tracy's back, that it would remain strong and healthy as she takes care of her mother-in-law. We also lift up Cynthia Mordhorst as she was moved out of ICU this week and was transferred to a skilled nursing facility. Please give her the grace to endure and for gained strength and health as she is very weak. We join the family in thanking God for bringing her this far through this difficult time. And we pray for the Thompson's son-in-law, Ray, who has been diagnosed with congestive heart failure. He's recovering from the flare-up earlier this month, but is uh, still quite weak. We pray for gained strength and a return to normal daily activity soon. And of course, for continued prayer for Pat Thatcher's continued recovery as he is receiving care and physical therapy in an interim care facility in Auburn. We pray that he would regain strength and mobility quickly and be able to return home soon. And I would like to close our prayer as we lift up Pastor Jeff, who is starting a new series on a book of Jonah this morning. I thank you for the faithful, consistent study and time he does so that he can preach the word clearly to us. I pray that our eyes would be open up to see and our ears would be open up so that we can hear and understand the word being preached here at EBC today and every Sunday. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, good morning. One bit of business here before we get started. There is a Ford F-250, I think parked right outside here, has lights on. So if you want to drive home later, you might want to turn them off. All right. As Jeff prayed, thank you, Jeff, for praying. We're going to be in a new book here just for the next four weeks, the book of Jonah. So as you open your Bibles and look for the book of Jonah, and don't be ashamed if you have to go to the table of contents. There is no shame there whatsoever. Find the book of Jonah, and we'll get started here this morning. I read this week a story of Arthur F. Burns, the chairman of the United States Federal Reserve System, and the ambassador to West Germany was a man of considerable uh, weight and gravity in his position. Medium in height, distinguished with wavy silver, silver hair and a signature pipe. He was the economic counselor to numerous presidents from Dwight D. Eisenhower to Ronald Reagan. And when he spoke, his opinion carried weight, significance, and, and all of Washington seemed to listen when he spoke. Arthur Burns was also Jewish. And when he began attending an informal White House group for prayer and fellowship in the 1970s, he was accorded a special respect. No one, in fact, quite knew how to involve him in the group. And week after week, when different people took turns to end the meeting in prayer, Burns was passed over out of a mixture of respect and reticence. One week, though, however, the group was led by a newcomer who did not know the unusual status for for Burns and he occupied and as the meeting ended the newcomer turned to Burns and asked him if he would close his time in prayer some of the old timers who'd been there for some time glanced at each other in surprise and wondered what would happen with this but without missing a beat Burns reached out held hands with the others in the circle and prayed this prayer Lord I pray that you would bring Jews to know Jesus Christ I pray that you would bring Muslims to know Jesus Christ finally I pray that you would bring Christians to know Jesus Christ Amen. Arthur Burns' prayer had become legend in Washington. But I wonder if that statement uh, shocks you. It seems that too many Christians treat coming to faith in Jesus Christ as the finish line. That praying a prayer of salvation is the culmination of the Christian life. And that's a sad and tragic belief. It would be like a man or woman completing their marriage vows, entering a covenant of marriage, and then never getting to know the one they married. I've seen a lot of engaged couples over the years spend an enormous amount of money and time on the wedding ceremony, but don't think too much of the marriage that follows. There are Christians walking around in name only, having never truly understood their God, understanding the mercy of God, and have failed to continue to get to know the God they say they serve. Jonah seems to be one of these guys, serving the Lord, but not knowing his Lord. Preaching about the mercy of God to his people, but not understanding the mercy of God. And this morning we begin a, four, a short uh, four-week series through the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is relatively short, 48 verses long. You can sit down and read the whole thing probably in 10 to 15 minutes. It's broken up into four chapters, and our plan is to walk through each chapter, one chapter a week for the next four weeks, and next week we'll be in chapter two. I've never preached anything other than a gospel account on Easter, so this will be new. Jonah chapter two, you have to read ahead and see why it applies to what we're going to look at at Easter. 
So if you haven't read the book of Jonah before, if you're not familiar with it, I would encourage you to spend time in the book of Jonah. Do not watch the VeggieTales movie. That will just ruin it. Go to the Bible. Read the story. I was asking my kids on the way here what they know of Jonah, and they were just going to be a play-by-play of that movie. So we're going to spend time this week in our house reading the story again so they understand what the scriptures say of Jonah. Let me give you some background as we, start, we dive in. The book of Jonah is, is one of uh, the Bible's minor prophets. These are not called minor prophets because they're unimportant, but because they're shorter. They com- comprise 12 books in the Old Testament, and the book of Jonah seems to be the most popular. seems to be mo- most well-known uh, in our world, the book of Jonah. Each chapter is in a different setting. Chapter 1 is at sea. Chapter 2 is inside of a fish. Chapter 3 is in, in the city of Nineveh. And chapter 4 is outside of the city of Nineveh. And Jonah's book is unique because it's considered a prophecy book with very little prophecy in it. But it's a significant book, one of which Jesus mentions a few times in the Gospels. One of the reasons why we paused from our study in Luke to look back at the book of Jonah. Some have questioned the legitimacy of this book, thinking that we should read this book maybe as a myth or a parable because of all of the miraculous things that happened, the storm and the fish and the quick repentance of the city. But Jonah was a real person. If you want to see that, you turn back to first or Second Kings chapter 14, it talks about his, his portfolio as a prophet and Nineveh as a real city. It's present day Mosul in Iraq. And there are secular records of citywide responses to prophecy that was brought to this evil place. The book is most likely set in the 8th century BC, and there are many prophecies that were brought to the city, so many so that they employed city officials to sift through the messages that were brought in. But what about this citywide repentance? And we'll get to that in, in a few weeks, chapter 3. It seems a little far fetched for people to understand or believe. We know from ancient Assyrian records that a complete solar eclipse occurred on June 15th, 763 BC. And soon after that eclipse, there were floods and a famine. So if Jonah traveled to the city around that time, and we think he did, based on 2 Kings 14.25, he would have arrived at Nineveh a few months within a year of all those eclipses and the floods and the famine to preach a short message of God's judgment towards this city. And how would you respond then? After all of that you'd experienced in in a famine and eclipse and floods, you might respond like what we see in chapter 3. The trauma of all that they went through and this messenger proclaiming judgment against you. So giving the traumatic response of those disasters, it begs the reason that this really was what happened. Inclined to repent. And so the whole thrust of this book is God calling Jonah to preach a message of repentance to the people of Nineveh. And if you're a Christian here this morning, the book of Jonah should remind you that of your own salvation, that it didn't begin with you. Sometimes we get into the Christian life and think and act as if we saved ourselves, but we didn't. Or or maybe you think you were saved because that person shared the gospel with you. And God absolutely used that person to share the gospel with you. But that person wasn't the beginning of your story either. God is sovereign over all. God called that person in their heart, even in ways that maybe seem uh, insensible to him or her, to share the gospel with you. Maybe it was in Awana or Sunday school with a teacher or parents or a friend or a neighbor. But listen, friends, this book shows us that God was behind it all. 
He was working behind the scenes. And just as God sent Jonah to Nineveh, he sent someone to tell you about God's holiness and your sin and the remedy through Jesus Christ. And you need to understand and give praise to God because your salvation began with God himself. So that's when we come to Jonah. This book is dropped right in the middle of Jonah's life, his story. He's been faithfully serving the Lord as a prophet. But the, the gospel message comes to him that he's, he has to go share with Nineveh, and he runs. And unless Jonah can see his own sin and see himself as living wholly by the mercy of God, he will never understand how God can be merciful to evil people and still be just and still be faithful. You know, the original readers of this book would have remembered Jonah as immensely patriotic, a highly partisan nationalist. He was a loyalist to the nation of Israel. And as we will see, if anyone had found out about his mission, I'm sure this was the fear he had, he, he would have been shunned, or at the least, or very worst, executed for treason against his people. Jonah was the worst kind of patriot. And, and God will continue to show his incredible mercy, not only towards Nineveh, but towards Jonah. So here's the main idea. Here's the one sentence that kind of encapsulates of what I want to share this morning. Jonah shows us that rebellion against God's word is never safe or satisfactory and often leads to severe consequences. Jonah shows us that rebellion against God's word is never safe or satisfactory and often leads to severe consequences. So if you haven't already, open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. It'll help you to have it open as we just walk through this chapter. We're going to stop at verse 16. We'll, we'll save verse 17 for next week. But here's the first point here. Rebellion led to running. This is for Jonah chapter 1. Rebellion led to running. Look at verse 1 through verse 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. In 2 Kings 14, 23 through 27, we read about this Jonah who was a working as a prophet of the Lord. He prophesied against the Assyrians, saying that Israel's kingdom would be expanded, even though the kings did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. See, even God's scandalous mercy applied to his people. And God has a way of, of, of disturbing our dreams for our lives. You know, I wonder if Jonah had this dream of what life was going to be like for him. We have dreams too. We have plans for our family, for a career, for a future. And God sometimes takes hard left turns. And suddenly we're on a different course altogether. And when God interrupts your life, he's calling you to leave those things behind and follow him. And Jonah had no idea how self-absorbed he had become. And, and God disturbs now his comfortable life. He was the voice of God to God's people. But now God was calling him away from that to proclaim God's word to those that reject him and God to the Gentiles. But we learn in this book, Jonah's heart had grown incredibly cold and stiff and unmovable. God says in verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Jonah's called now to go, to leave his people and preach in Nineveh. His assignment was to go to a city full of people of another race who regarded him as an enemy. And he was to go out and call against it. 
And why did Jonah need to go to Nineveh? Because it says here, their evil has come up before me, the Lord says, which is an idiom suggesting that it's a reckless racking of, up of offenses until the Lord can't abide with it any longer. It continues to sin as a city, and, and God now, in, in his mercy, sends Jonah to preach. You know, when the word of the Lord came to Jonah, he didn't need to go to, to his study or consult commentaries or notes. He needed to obey. His issue wasn't intellectual. His issue was moral. He just didn't want to obey. When the word of the Lord came to Jonah, it was a crash, crash collision of God's will versus Jonah's will. And when God interrupts our lives, our plans, our dreams, his goal is to remove idols that are there that we can't quite see. Jonah had a good life. He was a respected prophet. He was living the dream, his dream, in the country with his people. He was comfortable. He was satisfied. But God would uproot his idols. You know, I thought this week that nothing God gives you in this world is yours forever. Our entire life is but a mist. You know, I was thinking uh, this week as at home, just we have home projects. We just spent a lot of money to replace our roof, and and taking pride at, and and taking care of our home, but realizing <laughs> we're doing all this work that I won't live in forever. Someone else is going to come in behind me, probably buy a lot cheaper than I'm willing to sell it. The house I live in will be lived in by someone else. The job I, I work, the job you work, the career you set out to have that you've curated and perfected will be worked by someone else. The people that you love will only be around for a time. One day, all of the possessions that you own and the money that you've earned will belong to someone else. And I don't know if you find this liberating or depressing, but everything you have, your money, your house, your car, your family, all of that is temporary. And God directs everything, all of us, all that we have for his honor and glory. Jonah responds, verse 3, he rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. See, Jonah, he wants to get out of town. He's called to go east and he goes the opposite direction. He goes west to Tarshish, which is either at the very most southern part of Italy in the, in the boot of Italy or perhaps what's now southern uh, or northern Spain, southern Spain, sorry. According to Chronicles 9.21, a round trip to Tarshish from Joppa would take up to three years. So Jonah is in it for the long haul. He, he wanted out of town real bad. And, and, and it seems Jonah had no aversion to Gentiles in general. He, he readily entered their territory, walked through it, boarded their ship. He just didn't like the Assyrians. And here Jonah is fleeing and it's sin. Plain and simple. Do you know what sin is? Sin is disobeying God. Very simply. Sin is not doing what God calls us to do. Sin is fleeing from God and his rule, and Jonah did exactly that when he ran. The Bible teaches that everyone, from the wicked Ninevites to Jonah, the running prophet, to you and to me, we sin for which God will call us to account for one day. I will give an account for my sin. And friend, you will give an account for your sin. 
So let's be very clear. Anytime you turn away from God's commands in your life, you're sinning. Jonah is sinning here. And sinning always hardens the conscience. It locks you in a prison of your own defensiveness and rationalizations, and it eats you up slowly from the inside. And all sin has a mighty storm attached to it, as we will see. Why did, why did he rebel, though? Nineveh was the capital city of Israel's enemy, nation. Nineveh was the degenerate and violent center of the Assyrian Empire. It was the land of terror and torture. The Assyrians would have been called a terrorist state. But according to the prophets, Assyria would be the instrument in God's hand against the Israelites, against God's people. Jonah would regard Assyria and its capital city of Nineveh as a dangerous threat to the future security of Israel. It seems that Jonah and his generation considered themselves to be having the exclusive right to the Lord's favor. And even Jonah giving him the benefit of the doubt, he probably doesn't wish that the Ninevites would die, but surely he doesn't want them to live at the expense of his people. He would most likely be labeled as a traitor, as going to preach there. And God was asking him to sacrifice his reputation, to go and to preach salvation to this wicked nation. But he flees the presence of the Lord. What, what does it mean to flee the presence of the Lord? What is he saying here? He's fleeing the place of prayer and service. And maybe for him in his, in his way, it's, it's getting out of Israel would alleviate his conscience. It would free him to do with his life what he wanted to do. But there's never a place where we are pulled away from the presence of God. See, Jonah would be familiar with the psalm that Pastor Ryan read earlier. Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? He would be aware of this. And he's convincing himself that he could leave the presence of the Lord. That he could get out of, 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 of Israel and the conscience that would be relented in some ways. His, his, his pressure would go away. But God's mercy and grace is relentless. I find it interesting to think that some today feel the same thing about the church. There are many that for a time, they're faithful to worship with God's people, but when sin comes in and dominates their lives, they forsake worship with other brothers and sisters. And outside of COVID and the valid health concerns that people do genuinely have, there are some who are convinced that, that when they skip church, that they flee the presence of God. And they're wrong. God is everywhere. Friends, we should obey God. Running away from God is like hiding from God. It's like when my kids, when Lucy was two, and we would play hide and seek, and she would, in the middle of the floor, ball up. If she couldn't see me, then she thought I couldn't see her. Friends, that's what it's like when we try to run away from God. If you're trying to run away from God in some area of your life, realize that you will never succeed. You will never outrun God. Don't try. It truly is a waste of time. And it will only bring sorrow. Don't tell yourself that God can't find you or that he won't come looking for you. As he did with Adam and, and Jonah here and many others in the Bible. Do you really think you can avoid giving an account to God one day? You won't. Jonah fleeing here was also at a high cost. 
The ancient Jewish tradition suggests that possibly Jonah would have to most likely pay for the entire ship to leave the port when he wanted. So he was so dead set on disobeying God, he was willing to leverage his entire life savings to get out of Dodge. He just wants to get out. And another thing to notice too, Jonah's flight from God was entirely legal. Sometimes Christians can be tempted to equate illegal with immoral and legal with moral. Yet Jonah booked a passage on a ship and paid for it. He was not a stowaway. He acted legally. And what he did was still sin. So the choice was simple for him. Obey God and go to Nineveh or quit the ministry and begin to try to begin a new life in a new place. And jo- jo- uh, Jonah chose the latter. His fleeing was simply his way of communicating that he's refusing to follow God any longer. Church, you need to understand that God is holy and just. And if he were to permit Jonah's sin, or ours for that matter, and that sin were to go without a reckoning, then he would not be holy. And we could rebel against anything and everything without any concern for the consequences. But God is holy, and there will be a reckoning. This is why we understand what Matthew 18 teaches as church discipline. It's not out of a heart that just wants to be mean or elitist. It's out of obedience to God's word and the holiness required for his bride, the church. Our church, you, church family, we need to understand that being tough on unrepented sin is actually a display of kindness to the sinner. Barring someone from church membership because of their unrepented sin is better than letting him or her keep walking unworn toward being barred from the kingdom of God. So no matter who they are, an unrepentant church member or even an unrepentant church pastor, for us to go easy on unrepented sin dilutes the gospel that we preach and our witness as a church. It is a vain, empty, and foolish thing to run from God. And if our congregation don't say it clearly, no one else will. Jonah's rebellion led to running. And it it wasn't safe or satisfying. But it leads to consequences. So second, running led to a storm. Jonah runs, verse 4, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest in the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid. And I'll let you baseball fans interpret that however you please. (laughs) And each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. The storm must have been incredibly ferocious because These experienced sailors, these mariners who live in the sea and usually don't get scared in these issues. And the narrator takes great pains in this story. We'll see it throughout the whole book to describe all of these instances. The storm has been provided by God. He wants us to understand God's behind all of this. And the picture here of these mariners crying out to their God is fitting for our world today. For many, this is exactly how a mature, pluralistic community should function. The sailors' personal idolatries 
uh, qualify them as object of God's wrath. And so God has every right to bring judgment here on these sailors as much as the Ninevites. Romans 3 says, it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. So, so God is just here. And his response to the storm, not only for Jonah, but for every man on that ship. God had every right to bring the storm into their life. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, it says in verse 4, and had laid down and was fast asleep. Perhaps Jonah believed in those moments as he got onto the ship and he just kind of checked out. And, and, and this is an escape. He, he, he's tired. He's exhausted. And, and, and now he's going to go down and sleep. Perhaps he even thought, now I'm good. I'm, I'm golden. I, I'm safe. I'm away. I'm on the ship. I'm, I'm, I'm free. The, the ship's left. The door's shut. The boat's moving away from trouble. And, and I'm good. When we have opportunities, our heart to rebel against God, there will be freaking opportunities before us as providential means that, that, that we can come away and say, this is what God's will is for us. But if we're on the run from God, his providences are wise tests. They are never gracious excuses. Friends, they will always be a ship in the harbor ready to take you in the wrong direction from God. So don't confuse your opportunities with the will of God. Jonah completely disregarded God's word and now feels comfortable enough to take a nap. The failure of the Christian to hold fast to the word of God eventually means that they drift away from the word and with it they take the anchor of their whole life. Friends, don't be guided by providence when you are refusing to be guided by God's word. Do not take events in your life as your instructor when you have not taken God's word as your lamp to your feet and light to your path. Very simply, you cannot say you're in the will of God if you're not in the word of God. Well, the storm has come. In verse 6, the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. God sent this pagan sailor to arouse God's servant Jonah to his duties as a spokesman for God. The prophet who was commanded to arise and go and call out to Nineveh is now exhorted to arise and call out to his God by an unbeliever. The people who do not know God are desperately calling out to their gods who cannot save them, while one man who knows the sovereign Lord is fast asleep. And it's worth mentioning and pausing for a moment to let the world's rebuke to the church carry its full weight in our hearts here. His question, how can you sleep? Arise, call out to your God. Think about the unbelieving people in your life walking around mystified, troubled by our world in the storms and the church. What are we busy with? Are we so consumed with complaining and arguing about masks and vaccines and politics? We're asleep. 
Who will pray for those who don't know Jesus? Who will tell them of the hope that we have? How can we sleep when everyone else around us is perishing? You know, just this morning on our way to church, as we're leaving our neighborhood, one of my daughters notices and says, Dad, why aren't those people getting ready to go to church? I thought, what a genuine question from a kid that just doesn't get it. And I said, we live in an area that most people just don't. They're not following the Lord. And it doesn't mean we're better, it just means that we're trying to be faithful and we need to call out to them that they would turn from their sins and they would follow Jesus. And here, we have an unbelieving captain coming to wake up the prophet of the Lord to arouse him for his duties. And I wonder, I just wonder how we're doing They don't know what to do. The the ship captain, the the sailors don't know what to do. They say in verse 7, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? Lot casting was permissible in Israel. It involved small stones or objects marked in such a way to represent individuals or commodities. And so they're rolling the dice to see who's guilty. And we need to be clear, friends. We need to wake up. Your sin will be found out. Jonah's sin is going to be found out. And your sin affects the church. It not only affects you, it affects your family, it affects the church. Just like in the book of Joshua, the sin of Achan, it will come out and it will purify the group, the community. And so if we want to be a New Testament church, we want to be obedient to what God's word in the New Testament, then we need to be living in a way that involves other people in our lives. Confessing sin, not only to God, but to one another and seeking refuge in Jesus Christ. The Christian life cannot be lived alone. We need each other. We need the church. We need to be involved in each other's lives. And friends, it's, it's better today to confess your sin than to keep running. Here's Jonah about to be found out. What would you do if you were Jonah here? You're running from God. Now a storm comes to the ship. You're, you're awoke by the, the captain and they're going to cast lots to, who, to, to find who, who's guilty. And maybe your anxiety digs off. You try to play it cool, devising some excuses, trying to shrug it off. Mind you, the whole time the storm is just ravaging the ship. Well, Jonah didn't make excuses. He knew where the lot would fall. He knew he was going to be found out. And the finger of God pointed at him. They ask him, they tell us, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation? He, he could no longer say, I'm a prophet of the Lord because his witness had been silenced. The very work that he was called to do was laid aside so that he could serve himself. And for the crew to know Jonah's origins would help them decide of which God they could pray to if Jonah was the cause. In verse 9, he he says to them, he responds, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. 
Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Jonah finally speaks. These are his first words in the book. And since Jonah identifies himself first ethnically, then religiously, we can infer that his ethnicity is foremost in his self-identity. While Jonah had faith in God, it wasn't as deep to him as his race or his nationality. Many people in the world tack on the religion to their ethnic identity, which is more fundamental for them. When we were in Sweden, where we served the Lord, someone might say, of course I'm Lutheran. I'm Swedish. So even though they never attended church ever, being Swedish meant they were Lutheran. That's what they identified with most. Jonah's relationship with God was not as basic to his significance as his race or his nation. That's why when loyalty to his people and loyalty to God's word come into conflict, he chooses his nation over taking God's word to a different people. And unfortunately today, the church in America has fallen into the same trap. Who or what do you identify most with? Are you more American or Christian? Are you more Republican or Democrat than you are a follower of Jesus? Do you have more in common with your people than you do with your church family and other believers? Jonah says this, but let's look even further at what he's not telling them. What does he leave out? He's not telling them how to get a relationship with the God of the universe. Nor is he relying on his own spiritual resources in God by helping his fellow man in the midst of this storm. No, Jonah is selfish. His private faith is of no public good. He is selfish. He is hoarding his God to himself. He ultimately doesn't care about anyone except himself and his people and his nation. And they respond in verse 10. The, the, the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you've done? The phrase, what is this you have done, occurs five other times in the Old Testament. And it always expresses moral outrage at what the speaker perceives as foolish behavior. The mariners here, they're shocked that Jonah would dare defy such a powerful God and now place them in harm's way. And they are fearful because they are experiencing the results of someone running from God and they have to pay the price. Friends, God doesn't always send literal storms to call back his people, but he does go after his children. So Jonah's rebellion led to running. His running led to a storm and last, the storm led to judgment. Look at verse 11. And they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more temptuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea that the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Perhaps Jonah in this moment felt God had no more use for him. I really wonder if this is Jonah's next attempt to remove himself from the equation. So he doesn't have to go to Nineveh. He just wants to die. 
You don't get really get the sense that he cares much for these men at all. If he removed himself now, the Ninevites would not receive the warning and their destruction would most def- definitely be certain in his mind. Jonah is willing to die so that his people might be preserved. And at this point in the story, Jonah takes up the role of scapegoat and the sacrifice he makes to serve and save the sailors. He'll be hurled into the sea and it calms down and the wind dissipates and he saves them humanly and materially. But I believe it's not done for their safety, but to ease his conscience. But regardless, Jonah is saying, I'll fully take the wrath of these waves so you won't have to. And what we see clearly here is substitution. All life-giving love is some kind of a substitutionary sacrifice. Think about this, parents here in the room. If you have kids or had kids, children need you to read and read and read to them and talk with them a lot, over and over, lots of talking. If they're ever going to develop the language, if they're ever going to understand English and speak, they need to have you show time and patience if you're ever going to potty train them. They, they need you to set aside your dreams for the day to serve them food and clean their clothes and give them rides to practice and help them with homework. And as parents, we disrupt our lives for years in order to serve our kids. As parents, we lose a lot of our freedom now so that we can, we can help them learn to be free when, and be self-sufficient adults later. Friends, parenting is all about substitution. My life for theirs. And Jonah is the substitute here. My life for theirs. So Jonah says this in verse 12, but look at their response in verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. but They could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. And the the consideration that the heathen mariner showed to Jonah by now is trying to row to dry land after he confesses his rebellion sharply contrasts Jonah's attitude towards Nineveh and, and these sailors. But I want you to consider the significance of this picture. God has spoken through the prophet here, promising deliverance from the storm of judgment to the entire crew through the sacrifice of one man who will lay down his life. But these mariners think they can save themselves and row harder to safety. They want safety by their own strength. They believe they can survive the storm without a sacrifice. You say, I'm the captain of my own life. I'm in charge of this boat, this vessel. I don't need a sacrifice. And to my non-Christian friends here this morning, I wonder if you've said the same words in your own soul. You've convinced yourself that you're wise enough You know enough that you're going to be all right. You're going to just work hard to get to safety. But look again at verse 13. They could not, for the sea grew more and more temptuous against them. Friends, the storm of God's judgment against your sin is stronger than you are. You do not have the ability to survive this storm on your own. No matter how hard you try. The storm of God's judgment 
will wreck you unless you're saved by the sacrifice of someone else who took the wrath against your sin. And on the cross, Jesus gave his life to deliver you from God's righteous judgment against your sin. He offered himself as a sinless sacrifice that would placate the wrath of God on your behalf. At its heart, the gospel is about God's storm and his sacrifice. Christ was thrown into the storm of God's judgment so that through his sacrifice, you and I would be saved. So friends, won't you turn from your sin of trusting in yourself, thinking that you can just row harder to safety and trust in Christ alone? See, Jonah was not Jesus. Jonah was thrown into the sea on account of his own sins. But he is a picture of what Jesus did. Jesus was nailed to the cross on, what, on account of our sins. Christ had no sins of his own, and therefore he was uniquely in a position to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. So friends, won't you trust in him this morning? Well, as we end here, verse 14. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it has pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. What we hear, what we read here is the unbelieving sailors, the mariners, call out to God for mercy. And all unbelievers have to call out to pray for mercy from God, and he will answer. And we see a change here with these sailors. They offer a sacrifice to the Lord. And most likely, this didn't happen on the ship. Usually you don't have all that stuff with you on this boat. It happened probably when they got to land. And they give a sacrifice to the Lord and make vows. We don't know if they're following God or not. It sure seems like they're making steps in that direction. This chapter shows us that God is still at work outside with, us, with, with others preparing the nations for the reception of the gospel through his people. Well, as we end here, I have a couple things to, to think through. One question, the first one, is are you like Jonah? Are we like Jonah? You know, before we go too far condemning Jonah, you and I need to recognize that the same impulse is found in our own hearts fleeing from the presence of God and from the service of God. Our hearts are continually inclined to rebel against the Lord. We can so easily take the reins of our own life and believe that we always know what's best, imagining our own supreme rule, effectively thinking that we know more than God. And you and I are more like Jonah than we'd like to admit. In what, we, in what ways have you sought to control your own life without submitting yourself to God this week? Have you run from God or are you running still from God and refuse to obey his word? Are you living like Jonah? What we learn here in this chapter is rebelling against God's word is never safe and satisfactory and it leads to severe consequences. 
I read this week that each year Jewish congregations read the story of Jonah for their celebration of the Day of Atonement. And on that day, the book of Jonah is read. And the congregation responds to the reading of the, of the story with this confession. We are Jonah. And the point is to see yourself in this story. Jonah's whole issue was that he was convinced that God was not committed to his good and to his joy, so he refuses to obey God's word. And I suspect that is our problem too when we disobey God. We believe that God is in heaven to make our lives difficult, that he really doesn't care for us, that he's flippant or unloving. Friends, a God who substitutes himself for us and suffers for us so that we can go free is a God that you can trust and submit your entire life to. Jonah mistrusted the goodness of God, but Jonah didn't have the cross. So what's our excuse? We need to remember the gospel. We need to dwell there and find our satisfaction in the goodness of God and what he's done for us. The second thing, and last, we need to strive to not be like Jonah. So friends, go on the offense on Monday morning. When someone asks you, how was your weekend? Tell them about what you heard on Sunday. Tell them about Jesus. Walk them through this passage. They're most likely going to know what you're talking about. Walk them through Jonah. It's a familiar story. And then invite them to join us next Sunday. You know, we, we have uh, restrictions for space, and we have yet to, to meet that. I, I'd love to have that issue, okay? Especially on a, on a, on a Sunday where we're going to exalt the Lord and remember him rising from the grave. Um, I dare you. Well, I don't know if I should say that, actually. It would be wise and, and helpful to have more here and understand the gospel for the first time. I'm not worried about those issues, the Lord will provide, but friends, I wonder if this week in the interactions you have with work or with friends at school or with your neighbors, that we can be acting not like Jonah and share with others. You know, Jonah re refused to share any hope with these sailors and he hoarded the good news of God to himself. So don't be like Jonah. Be gospel gossips this week. We should know the gospel so well that when opportunities come unexpectedly, we're ready and willing to share. And we should have a healthy fear of divine judgment. A healthy enough fear that we would never wish that upon, that, 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 our, that we would never wish that people would go to hell upon our worst enemies on earth. See, ironically, the mariners initially demonstrate a healthier fear of divine judgment than Jonah does here. Jonah doesn't display a healthy fear of God's judgment against sin. Instead, what we find here at the end of chapter 1 is the prophet of the Lord, Jonah, is in desperate need of the mercy of God that he finds so troubling. And yet God shows him mercy. God shows him a scandalous mercy. And Jonah doesn't deserve it, but God gives it. And this book is about mercy. Our sins are many, but his mercy is more. We're going to sing that in a minute. So I pray that it will fuel our week as we leave this place to serve the Lord. Would you pray with me?
God, if we're honest this morning, we are just like Jonah. We have experienced great mercy from you, and yet we struggle to show that same mercy to others. We are a self-centered people, and yet, God, you continue to pursue us. You chase our hearts, and you continue to show us a scandalous mercy for sinners like us. We don't deserve you, God, but you have chosen us and redeemed us for your honor and glory. And what an incredible patience that you show us, God, as we, as we roam away from obedience to your word, and you continually call us home. We praise you, Lord, for your mercy. Help us to love you. Help us to serve you this week. For we pray this all in Jesus' merciful name. Amen.